Welcome back to Inside the Pastor Study Podcast. I'm Pastor Jeremy. And I'm Pastor George. And we are back with you, uh, ready to jump into a new topic and a new uh, a new theological term of the week. That's Ooh, coming up soon. Yeah, that's yeah. coming up. Uh, building on some of the things we're learning through ecclesiology. Uh, but if you're new with us, we're welcome. Uh, we're so glad you joined. Uh, this podcast is a... We're a father and son pastoral team. We love the local church, and we wanted to be able to let you in on the conversations that pastors tend to have uh, throughout their week, um, the things that we think through and talk about. And there's one particularly this week that I'm interested in getting into because it's timely. Yeah, it's Not, timely. Sometimes our sometimes our conversations are just are just bigger issues that we notice, and sometimes they're they're current events. And I think both of us, out as a principle, avoid current event sermons. Right. Um, Absolutely. And we avoid it's most levels current event um but classes because somebody might be listening to this in like 2027 and saying, <laughs> that is what piece. is that all about right for sure or like oh man if they only knew what came of that current event in yeah, 10 years right yeah yeah um but we also know like you know this the, this statement has always been like preaching out of the newspaper right you uh some guys will do that and then you end up you regretting a lot of what you said. Absolutely. Like we try to preach out of scripture. That's that that's timeless, and it doesn't need to have, um, you know, revisions later on. And yes. so that's kind of where we focus on. But there are occasionally current events that d- deserve some conversation. So we're going to get to that right here in a little bit. But before we jump into our current event conversation today, we're going to talk about one that's been around for a long time in our right. theological term of the week. <laughs> The theological term of the week. The theological term of the week is deacon. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. 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 Because I, well, obviously we, but I grew up in a very Baptist world. Right. And in those very Baptist churches that we had, we had the pastor... And maybe some associates and assistants, right? And then you had the deacon board. Deacon board. And then you had a series of committees. Yes. And then you had the regular members of the congregation who met frequently to vote on every nut and bolt in the church. Yep. And then you had the, you know, the people who only showed up on Sunday mornings. How dare they not come to Sunday nights and Wednesday nights? Yes. So that's the structure. Structure. Of church that, that. Um, I dominated my childhood. Sure. Right. Yeah. And so now we're in this church structure and have been for some time, uh, where we are, um, pastors are serving as part of an elder team. Right. Very um, common. And there are, there's variations even in that, right? Like right. Our church, we call it an elder with a bump, right? The senior yes. pastor is kind of this, um, elevated, elevated elder. among equal, elevate, you know, elder thing right and then others are different so there's an elder team and then a separate deacon team and i think what was it about it's probably been within the last 20 years that some of these conversations have hit the evangelical church with like some kind of energy yeah um what's going on with this what is this term where do we get it why are why is it divisive where where do we come from what's the deacon i I think the reason that deacon is divisive, if you will, is that there really is very little scripture on them. Hmm. There's like one passage, right? Acts chapter six is where you get deacons Mm -hmm. and they're mentioned. For example, Philippians one, you know, when Paul greets the church in Philippi, he greets it as uh, the church together with the elders and the deacons. Right. And when you have the and in there, it means that those are two separate groups. Right. 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 
you know, it's not like the elder and deacon Bob. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So they're 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 distinctively different. And 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 then you get into all, all kinds of stuff with really trying to micromanage acts or act six mm-hmm. and come up with an idea of what it is that a deacon is supposed to do. And I actually was in one church where um I wanted to expand my deacon board mm. and I hit all kinds of all kinds of uh turbulence over that and the board was never expanded because someone was taking a super hyper reading of Acts chapter six and said, well, there were only there were only what seven, seven deacons deacons that were appointed appointed in Acts chapter six. Yeah, so that's the biblical number. So that's the biblical number. You it's can't have limit. more than seven and you can't have less than seven. You have to have seven. So deacons. if you have a church of forty five. And I said that to him. I said that to this guy that was the head of the we have to have seven, you can't expand it to eight. And I said but there are churches that don't have seven men to serve as deacons. They, they've got three. Yeah. And the response was, well, they're unbiblical. And I'm like, what do you mean? I mean That's interesting. So you would violate like the, uh, um, the scriptures that talk about the qualifications of deacon in order to hit that number? Well, you would have to have seven deacons. Otherwise, you're not a church kind of a thing. Oh, you'd just be a, like a group or you're a just study. A group. Yeah. Yes. So you yeah. couldn't be an official church. Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty, and that was that was one of my, actually, that was one of my favorite conversations in all of my life as a pastor mm-hmm. because I got one of the greatest quotes out of that. Okay, my the, the great quote was, "Don't try to cloud this with scripture." That's what he said to me. <laughs> yes, that's great. That is. <laughs> oh man, I'm just my wheels are spinning now. Like what. You know, you have so many conversations off of that. What makes a church an official church, right? Yeah. Like, is it just, can you just have a small group of people meeting in your house, call yourself a name and call that a church? Is that official? Because well, that's kind of how Philippians starts, right? Well, but the, the Philippian church, church has, has a congregation, elders and deacons. Yeah. I've actually seen that addressed as you are not a proper congregation. You are not an actual local church unless you have a congregation. Uh-huh. At least one elder uh-huh. and at least one deacon. Interesting. So that and and that flows. For example, I I come from a background where uh, you cannot celebrate the Lord's table uh-huh. without elders and deacons to serve it. To serve it. Right. So because you're not, that's a work. That sounds kind of high church. Communion is a work that's given to the church, not to individuals. Right. Within the church. So to celebrate the Lord's table, you need to have elders and deacons present. Interesting. Um, which, of course, then then you go to this other side of it, and it's like, okay, so, but you've got, let's say baptism is a work of the church, mm-hmm. but you have Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. Just the two of them, right? In the wilderness. And it's just, maybe there's a congregation there, and they were writing down the story. Could be. Maybe, and they called in an elder. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, interesting thing. So we deacons, back ourselves in the corners with these we things, don't do, we? You know, painting ourselves in the corner. So we didn't really define it, did we? No. Right, so no talk to me about no. what a deacon is. All right. So, so basic bottom line: mm-hmm. deacon is a is a transliterated, just like baptize. Mm. It is a transliterated Greek word, right. diakonos, and it means table waiter. Mm. Table waiter. All right. Right. So. If I'm one of the thing that I draw out of the the word deacon 
and its role is that a deacon is a servant of the church. Yeah. Right. It's just in my head, it was spinning like, you know, table waiters. This must be a good college kid ministry then, right? Because yeah, they're all doing be? that. Like, yeah. 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 But of course, another role is, is semi quasi defined in uh, in First Timothy. Uh, Paul gives Timothy a great deal of conversation about what it means to be an elder. Mm-hmm. Comes back to that topic like two or three times within the book. Uh, and then after defining what it means to be an elder, does this in Titus too. After defining what it means to be an elder, he then says, oh yeah, and deacons should be similar. Yeah. Yeah. It's you like know? this... The standard is still high, just not as high. Yeah. It's still very high. I mean, still we're still talking high. about a high bar for these leaders. Yes. Yes. Right? And, and if you think about like the whole story of the church, um, we place a high value on those who serve. Yes. You know, that's kind of a thing that Jesus did that we're supposed to reflect, right? Like, it's not that these are, this is a lower group of people. This, you know, in the, uh, in the economy of the Christian faith, those who serve are pretty highly valued. Exactly. Right. And right, so just right. because we're calling them the servants, right. Or like, you know, we're saying like, these are like an elevated group of leaders, um, in, in the way that the tr- Christian church operates. And that's why we're going to call them servants. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, so they have this and it's, it's a defined role. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very clear. Uh, just to make things messy, mm-hmm. of course, in First Timothy, uh, Paul uses the feminine form of deacono, diakonos, right? Yeah, that can really... So now you not only have diakonoi, you have diakona, which means that you not only have deacons, but you have deaconesses. Mm-hmm. And that one has been bounced historically in multiple different ways. Like, sure. Um, I have been in Baptist churches where they have a deacon board and they have a deaconess board. Mm, mm-hmm. And the deacon board in those churches was basically what we do with elders these days. They just they were kind of the ruling body of the local church, and the deaconesses were the ruling body of the women in the church, and they made sure that coffee was served at the right time. Yeah, and and you know, and then I've had I've been in other churches where they have a deacon board, and when they talk about deaconesses, well, deaconesses. They translate that as the wives of the deacon. Interesting. And I see that in some churches where like you have a, a couple and they are deacons. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we even in our church, some of our deacons are couples. Yes. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So um, I guess the original context of the word, the appointing of these first deacons comes in Acts. We've already referenced right. this, right. Acts 6, right? And and those are, you, know, you, have, the, you have your church apostles. Yes. Um, who are there responsible for the teaching of the word and prayer for the saints and, and organizing the church, exactly. leading the church. And they are burdened with a very important task of caring for the weak and the, the, um, the outcasts among the congregation. And it's kind of all falling on their shoulders. And they're looking back and like, well, like, you know, it's almost like a Moses's father-in-law coming to him with the same conversation. Hey, exactly. you can't handle this all on your own. You need to appoint some people who will come alongside you yes. and uh, lighten this burden. You're going to go crazy. You know, same thing in the New Testament church. You have this, you know, congregation of thousands. That's true. That's expanding yeah. and growing. And, the, you know, they're, they're recognizing through obviously the work of the Holy Spirit, like we cannot sustain this if it's all on, if all of this effort is on us, let's right. spread this to people we can trust. Yes. So, 
So here's a couple of things that I take away from Acts chapter 6 about deacons that maybe people would think of me as I have just a totally different view of this role in church work. Hmm. I see the Acts chapter 6 situation as a task-driven problem. So it's not, it's not an ongoing, if you will. It is ongoing, but it's not... From now on, deacons the, only care for Greek widows? Exactly. So here's the primary, right? The primary of the church is the making of disciples. Mm-hmm. But in the primary task of the making of disciples, which the 12 are focused on and working toward, mm-hmm. in the making of those disciples, there are ancillary things that come along that are ministry or task-related. Like, okay, we're making disciples, and amongst those disciples is this group of people for whom we need to have compassion on. They're, they're Greek widows. They're widows, mm-hmm. just widows in mm-hmm. general. Yeah, right, right, right. Not just, yeah. And, and because... This church is huge. People don't realize the church, the, the church in Jerusalem, uh, by the time that the church fall, by the time Jerusalem falls in sixty three, mm-hmm. is probably somewhere around two hundred and fifty thousand people. Hmm. We're not talking about we're not talking about your little church of fifty or one hundred and fifty. We're not even talking about your church of five thousand. We're talking about probably close to 250,000 people okay. that have, have embraced Christ. About half the city hmm. is what most most scholars now see in early Jerusalem. Uh, just archaeological work that's being done in Jerusalem just demonstrates the pervasiveness of the church in the first century. It's just pretty, pretty amazing. Um, and that, by the way, probably leads to the fall of Jerusalem, because uh, just history-wise, I'm getting a little history thing, right? Mm-hmm. There's this moment where the governor of, of of Jerusalem, the Roman governor of Jerusalem, dies in office, and he takes it takes three years to replace him. And in that three-year period, it's hard to find a good CEO. Yeah, exactly. It is. <laughs> it is. In that three years, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, see an opportunity to do something about. Christian movement. Hmm. And that is the moment where they martyr James. They take James, who is the half-brother of Christ, um, and they they push him off of the edge of the of the Temple Mount. Hmm. And when he falls, probably about five or six stories, and doesn't die, they all go down and surround him and stone him to death. And that sets off this this civil war, if you will, within the city, because half of these Jewish half of this Jewish population are Christians and yeah. they see themselves having had their temporal leader, James, killed. They see this whole thing as just a major issue. It causes a great deal of problems. The Romans see that and rather than sending a governor, they send an army. Hmm. And that army because sure, this little upstart country that they, Exactly. They're already dealing with the war, you know, with the Gauls and all of these other exactly. like, on the other outskirts of their right. So um, let's just put that down. Yeah, and we've had enough of it. We'll just destroy the entire temple. We'll destroy the city. Yeah, we'll we'll make Jews persona non grata. So here's the thing, right? This church is huge. Two hundred and fifty thousand people 
Let's let's back it up to Act Six. Maybe maybe at that point it's only ten thousand. Mm-hmm. But if you have ten thousand people, you have a lot of widows. Sure. Right. And and you've got this problem of of women who are are widows and they come from Hebrew backgrounds and widows who are Jews but still have Greek backgrounds or Greek names. Mm-hmm. They're looked down upon in the culture. Um, whether they realize it or not, they've created, they've brought, they've dragged that culture into the world. Um, the twelve decide they don't want that to be a problem. The best way we're going to do that is we're going to set aside a group of people who are spiritual mm-hmm. to take care of a task. Mm-hmm. What's the task? The task is these people are being overlooked. It's drawing us away from. Our responsibility to teach, to preach, to pray, to do all of the things, to disciple. You guys take care of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you take those seven and you say, okay, these seven are going to take care of all of the widows in a church of Mm -hmm. 10,000, those seven aren't doing that work. Mm. Those seven are organizing and managing it so that it's no longer a task. Mm. And that's where I see deacons in the 21st century. Totally different concept. I see deacons as managers of ministry tasks who have the obligation and responsibility of organizing a team and making sure that the ministry doesn't become a distraction, but that it becomes a part of the message Hmm. of a local church. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to have seven deacons. And you don't have to have seven deacons whose focus is on compassion ministries. Mm, mm-hmm. You might need two deacons who are over compassion ministries because they can take care of all of your widows and orphans and poor and make sure that everybody in your congregation gets taken care of. But you may also have a deacon whose role it is to make sure that spiritual education Sunday school goes mm-hmm. well, and you may have a deacon whose obligation is to make sure that your nursery operates the way it should. And you may have a deacon whose goal is to make sure that the physical plant doesn't become a distraction from the ministry. Hmm. Task, task is number one, avoiding distractions, number two. Interesting. So then you have that other term, which I don't think is biblical, but you have the trustee board, right? Which is kind of that yeah. group that like, you know, like, I think in the, you, you, I remember in a former church, I talked about this, and then you actually implemented it. You talked about renaming your trustees and calling them Levites. Levites. You had a Levite team. I did. I yeah. had a Levite team. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, that, that kind of linked back into a term that was, you know, more biblical. And like, these are the people who kind of handle the physical plant of the church, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember this. And so... But yeah, so we have the trustee board and a lot of that comes because, you know, corporations have trustees and they manage the corporation and they're responsible for the corporation. All yeah. kinds of interesting, like American corporate pieces that have linked yeah, into the church and we absolutely. just kind of assign new names to them that sound vaguely biblical. Yeah. Um, so, so here's one, right? Yeah. So if you, we corporatize. So deacons become the the board, the local board of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, what most people don't grasp is that... Uh, Local boards, our our boards and corporates corporations, normally have financial skin in the game. Yeah, 
Yeah, so technically your deacon board or your elder team should have like about partial ownership, right? It should right? be like 50% of your finances every week, yeah. the people that are on your board. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting concept, but that's... <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be a fun requirement? And Maybe it goes both ways, right? Because yeah. I, I, don't, I don't want necessarily a guy on my board who is there because he's... A got, big giver. He's a big giver and he has no buy-in to the mission. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, so historically, at least in our wing of um, the church, you have a deacon team who functions as an elder team. Yes. Um, early in my pastoral ministry, I was in one of these and they actually converted. I helped kind of begin that process of moving that deacon team into a task oriented group and rather than being the, the leadership group and we, we instituted elders. Um, so is that is that a relatively new push, or is that just something that the Baptists finally caught up on? You know, like what yeah. what made John MacArthur made that happen? Is that what happened? Yeah, John MacArthur. John MacArthur becomes the the rock star for elder led churches. Hmm. Uh, he takes an, a different reading from Acts chapter twelve, of all places. And, uh, you know, because it says that the elders were praying in Acts chapter 12 and uh, and that God said, set apart for me Paul and Silas. Sure. Or Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it says, and they laid hands on them and sent them out. And, mm-hmm. and MacArthur says, you know, the issue with the they is that we have for years and years taken the they to mean the entire congregation. Hmm. Like. You know, all a thousand people in Antioch laid hands on Paul and Barnabas to send them out. And he said that they goes back to the elders that were praying. Oh, that's interesting. I've always just assumed it was the elders. This is because I grew up later. Yeah. That was just the word. Yeah, I, exactly. You, yeah. Huh. Culturally different. But yeah. Culture. Yeah. So uh, that's that kind of began the the whole transition of deacons to being servants, compassion ministry driven. Yeah. And we've tied that conversation, that, that passage of in earlier, earlier in Acts to that decision. Sure. And there's, there's a, there's an intermediary step too that comes. Uh, A lot of Baptist churches, we're not a Baptist church. No, no, no. Yeah, that's good. Right. Uh, We're, we're a congregational church with, with Baptistic flavor. But there was a, a move in Baptist churches to make their deacons more, more community rather than less and less um, board, mm. um, and that was called the Deacon Caring Movement. Mm. That came mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that came in the um, early eighties, late seventies, early eighties, and that's out of Dallas Seminary. Interesting. So that's this is helpful history for me. So so that's when you start giving like each deacon is assigned like five people from the congregation, yeah, and they're your whatever or, you yeah, have, right? Like right. that, depending on your church size, and right. that. Then they just have to care for that group, right? So they, in the old days, they would actually get a card catalog, and their card catalog included, "I visited all of my people," and yeah. you know, and they would have to hand in their cards that said that they'd made a visit, or they'd prayed, or they had some contact with Those everyone people on a regular basis. People on a regular basis, huh. um, which was hard. Because, I mean, you had those that actually grasped that concept of yeah. what they were doing. And if you have if you have extroverted deacons, that's great. But if you have deacons who see their role as sitting on a board, 
um, once a month and, you know, complaining about the pastor's salary. Yeah. (laughs) Those guys do not handle that idea of I've got to go and talk to my five people well. Right. And when they do, they make their five people frustrated with whatever they're frustrated with. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. So there's that intermediary between being, you know, deacons are the, are the, the guys sitting in the background who are controlling the church to where we are now, again, task-driven servant mm. leaders. So who's... last question on this, because we're going kind of long on the conversation, yeah, but it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm just kind of digging this out. Um, I'm, I'm unearthing things in, in the background here. What, how did this start in the first place? How did churches get to the point where they like disregarded elders as a board and called that a person and instead had the deacons as this governing board? When does, what's the instigation of that you could theoretically go all the way back to uh to um is it irenaeus okay okay irenaeus is a first century um christian writer um and irenaeus proposes that you have one pastor Mm -hmm. in a church one elder and his his support is that bishop is something over multiple churches mm-hmm. and that below the elder below the local pastor are the deacons who have the responsibility of the leadership of the church okay all right this is very catholic very interestingly enough. yeah all right that's, that's what getting irenaeus at. is used as the as the foundation for um the dissolution of elder boards hmm. um irenaeus is uh and there have been those who have actually dug through Irenaeus's work in the last in the last fifty years and said, "We're not sure that these letters from Irenaeus are from Irenaeus legit." Oh, interesting. Which is very interesting, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you see the reality that churches are beginning in the second century to already go to a singular priest and a lay leadership. Board that would be commonly called deacons. Okay, so this, yeah, because I'm thinking, you know, in the in the Catholic movement, you've got, you know, these this council, right? Sure. Kind of like you have like the yeah. the council of well, twelve. Roman churches have deacons, right? So you have that council that you know you would you've had the Antioch council, yeah, and you got a pope among that council, right? And Peter, right? And then you have these regional bishops. You know, some of those that council is regional, but then they have the reg- regional bishops and underneath those. On me, though. It's almost right? like a synod. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, we were talking about that recently. And then underneath that, you have a pastor, and then they have the, you know, the pastor would be and that el- that church's elder. Yeah. And then you have the deacon board who serves with that pastor. So what you have is a laity, clergy, distinctive yeah. already beginning, and that laity clergy distinctive, as much as we despise it in congregational Protestant churches exists. There is a, there is a clergyman, mm-hmm. a pastor. Mm-hmm. He's the only elder. And then you have the, lay the local lay leaders who are deacons rather than saying, I can have lay elders. That's the, right. So in those earlier symptom, systems, every elder would have had to be clergy. Right. Right. Absolutely. I remember when a Baptist group that I was part of first started having churches that were changing the name of their deacon board to elder board. Mm-hmm. 
and oh my goodness, you would have thought that they were um, that they were denying Christ. Huh. Like, were they trying to process, do you ordain all of these people and all that? Or? Well, and that's, well, in Southern Baptist churches, they've always ordained deacons. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Even the deacons are ordained. Even the deacons are ordained in Southern Baptist churches. Well, that's fascinating. I hope, I'm nerding out here, and this is interesting to me. I'm, I'm hoping that we haven't had people fall asleep at the wood. Yeah, wheel at this be, conversation. Sorry about that. Sorry, y'all. But if you have other questions on this, you can always email us. Please. Podcast at marshcorner.com. Yes. Or, um, get in touch. If you're curious, you know, more more curious about how all of these things developed and why we use them the way we use them now. But ultimately, a deacon, you know, you're advocating that, that the deacon role is a lay leader in the church who's assigned to a particular task, task. that the church um, needs, which is interesting to me. Just, you know, that means that that task isn't necessarily a permanent one, right? Like you can have a, if you have a particular need in your church that's not permanent, you could theoretically call a deacon to see that need through until its completion. What if you had a, what if you had a local church that didn't have any widows? Yeah. Right, so how do you have a, how do you task a... So therefore you don't have any need for deacons. Yeah, it's inter- there you go. Interesting. Well, something for us to chew on. Uh, look, open up, open up your scriptures to Acts, open up your scriptures to, to Paul's letters, particularly to Timothy and Titus, and uh, dig through this yourself. See yeah. if you have a, a different spin on it. But there you go. There's there's some history on the term deacon and its distinction from what we talked about last week with elder and pastor. Uh, that's our theological term of the week. The Theological Term of the Week. So in the time that we have left with y'all listening <laughs> or watching, uh, yeah, um, on watching us on YouTube, whatever, um, the uh, this last weekend of Super Bowl. Right. And uh, um, all of my Philadelphia family are in mourning, mm. you know, which, mm. you know, it's mm. just, mm. just a shame. Just, just Just a shame. Those poor Philadelphia fans who every year proclaim this is our year. Right. And uh, based on nothing. (laughs) And this year they got so close to being right. And yet they weren't. Well, they they get very spiritual because they usually quote, you know, Isaiah 40, 31, you know. They will rise up on wings like like eagles. eagles. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, so we don't want to. I don't want to bash my family too much. They're wonderful people. They're just a little aggressive in their fandom. Um, but in the you know, one of the things for you know is, is this cultural phenomenon. Like you, you have the Super Bowl. It's the most watched television program in the world. Uh, you know, and uh, with that, you also have the Super Bowl commercials. Two hundred and sixty-six thousand dollars per second. This is year. that what it was yes. this year? Oof. That's a lot of money. Um, which leads to. A conversation that has been happening, I think, in churches ever since. I, this conversation is not new from this weekend no. um, because there's been an ad campaign that's existed now for a little bit. Um, but there were two Super Bowl spots this last, you know, in the last weekend uh, purchased by a group of Christians where they're attempting to advertise Jesus in a winsome way. And uh, it's the He Gets Us campaign. Yes. Yeah. Um, we uh, don't know a lot about the makeup of that group. I think the rumor is that there are some Hobby Lobby people in there. Right. There's some other very, very wealthy believers who have decided um, that they're going to run an ad campaign that reintroduces, in a sense, Jesus to a world that's divided. Right. And right. Uh, and I think that's the heart behind it, right? Like the, we're gonna we're gonna probably we're gonna yes. leverage our resources in a way that brings. Jesus more into the 
national conversation and then connects Jesus to where the American culture is particularly, right? Um, but I find myself, like, as I'm watching these commercials, as, as I saw them this past Sunday, thinking, like, I wonder, there's just, I don't know, there's something about it that's cringy to me. Yes. Um, yes. I, I see it. And I, the commercials themselves, by the way, the one yeah. commercial, the, the, the child commercial, mm-hmm. um, loved that commercial. Yeah, it was cute. Beautiful. It was cute. Yeah. It was cute. The other one, was to me, was cringy because it focused on the public anger and outcry and division in our country. Yeah. Yeah, I, I honestly, I believe that Jesus can heal the division in our country. Mm, uh, absolutely. Totally. But it felt like a political ad. It did. It very much did. Like, I was wondering who was about to announce their presidency. Yes. Yeah. You know, here I am. I'm going to bring these opposing sides together. And underneath my administration, we will have peace in the Midwest. Yeah. Right? Like, is that like, yeah. you know, that, it's what it felt like. Yeah. You know, some, some, some older gentleman was about to pop up on the screen Paid for by yes older gentlemen's you know campaign campaign yeah. which of course twenty twenty six whatever was the next twenty twenty four yeah, yeah. I it, mean yeah. Is, isn't that the reality though that the only peace that the country is going to see is Jesus yeah and this is our fight like this we keep looking for, to politicians to fix our division and the politicians are there to capitalize on sure, our division sure um so this 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 commercial airs and I think from there. I have heard more conversation about the He Gets Us campaign since this past Sunday than leading up to it. And right. some of that comes from, wow, $20 million got spent. Yeah. Um, yeah. How effective was that $20 million? And then you get into like my least... We're talking about it. Yeah, it's true. Like You get into... If you want to annoy me, I, I understand your heart here and I, I will treat you with kindness, but... I'm judging you internally. Just this is a statement like friend to friend who's watching. If you want to annoy me as a pastor, you will tell me that any dollar spent, any amount of dollars spent, as long as it reached one person for Jesus, it was worth it. Like that will, I will walk away from that exchange with you still loving you, but a little bit annoyed about the conversation. True. Um, Like, you know. We spent a hundred thousand dollars on this church program, but even one person comes to know Jesus, it was worth it. And I'll see that. I'll be like, ah, I don't like that statement. Yeah, um, it's not good stewardship. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, and so but there's the, the the reverse of that. The reverse of that. Yeah, and the reverse of that is uh, what I call the the Judas Iscariot conflict. Mm, mm-hmm. you know, How the, dare you spend this money? You could have spent that twenty million dollars on the poor. Fed the poor, yeah, right? right, yeah, and, and we leverage that all the time. You know, which you know, I saw that tweet out there about that this week by a very famous person in our country, and I thought, wow, she's just quoting Judas, Judas quoting Judas Iscariot, and doesn't even know it. Yeah, yeah. Which maybe that's the whole essence of the he gets his campaign, is that it's. This is a beautiful offering. It's a beautiful opportunity to uh, make people realize just how little they know about Jesus. Because that's <laughs> that was. I mean, yeah. this person this person portrays themselves as as intelligent, smart, and a leader, and yet, without realizing it, quotes the most infamous person ever to live, and that <laughs> just made me laugh. Yeah, and yeah. So I guess the thing about the He Gets This campaign from one aspect of it is that it's like any bumper sticker. It doesn't 
because it doesn't fully expose the truth, it creates an untruth. Hmm. Um, the question is, you know, okay, he gets us. Does that does that then does that then license me hmm. to be whatever I want to be? Uh, we we have a we have a kind of a, a driving force here at Marsh and in my ministry in general, and that is that that Christ saves us where we are mm-hmm. in expectation of where he will take us. Mm-hmm. And there are far too many people who think that salvation is a punctiliar thing with no ramifications at all about my behavior, my life, my desire, my relationship with Christ. It's just, okay, I'm saved. I'm taken care of. I don't have to change a thing. Yeah. And Jesus will gradually change me. The Holy Spirit will gradually change me into what he wants me to be, yeah. but I'll probably die first. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and and it's like, I don't have to give up my... We've had this conversation. We yeah. talked about this when we talked about repentance, right? Yeah. I don't have to give up my sin. I don't have to give up anything. I don't have to change anything because Jesus loves me. Yeah. And he's standing before the Father advocating for me on my behalf. He, he gets covers us. my sin. And all mm, it's true, right? Like there's truth in all of that. He does stand before the Father and advocate on our behalf. And he, you know, sees our sins no more. And what a joy that is. And we can be at any stage uh, in our walk. And as long as and I believe as long as you're still living and breathing, you can be saved, no yes. matter what you've done yeah. in your life, right? Like th- so those are all truth things. Um, but the intention is not to allow you to be yourself, but with the insurance policy of heaven, the, 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 the thing is like Jesus is transformational yes. and requires life change after you've come to know him and, and trust in him. So there's a, there's this, there's this issue of, are you telling people he gets us? Are you telling people that Jesus knows about your sin and he doesn't care. He's not going to do anything about it. Yeah. Or are you telling me that Jesus is someone who understands my sorrows and wants to change me? I think so. The world hates that concept. Yeah. That any kind of change. change, any kind of change. Whoever you are is who you're supposed to be. You be you, right? Yeah. That's the, that's the rallying cry of our culture, I think, which is one of the reasons why this campaign is str- finding cultural struggle is because implicit in this is the reality that Jesus is going to change you if you trust in him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, so uh, to give, I have no idea who's investing in this, you know, I, but to give them the benefit of the doubt, um, I would say like, uh, the idea here is we are communicating to a culture, um, that, um, you know, man of sorrows, right? What a name, like, this is the statement, like, Jesus, because he was fully human and lived and lived the experience of human, understands suffering, understands loss, understands pain, understands abandonment, understands division, understands worldwide strife, understands all of these things because he's lived it as a real human being. And the God that we serve is a God who understands because God, he's lived it himself. He's not distant and far off. He is... Um, in a sense, you know, become like one of us, not yes. in a sense, like he's become like one yes. of us. Right. Um, but his holiness means so much more than our brokenness. Right. Um, so to give them the benefit of the doubt, I think that's the attempt at the communication here. But I, I had a friend who's a, um, who's a pastor who you know, sent this thing out on Monday asking 
you know, Facebook friends of his, you know, hey, if if you're, would you, if you are not a Christian, but you're a friend of mine, would you be willing to weigh in on what you thought when you saw that campaign? Now, that was interesting. Like the couple of comments that are on there are comments of people going like, feels hypocritical to me. Like, you know, Christians are the problem. And here they are saying, uh, this is an over gross generalization, right? Christians are the problem. They're the ones who are creating all this division. If it wasn't for Christians, there wouldn't be all of this animosity and strife. And so it rings odd to me that they mm. would bring Jesus into this when if Christians didn't exist, this, again, yeah, I I'm it. reading I it in this comment. Yeah. Where if Christians didn't exist, yeah. we wouldn't have all of this strife. We'd just get our way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so to come in and say, Jesus understands all of the strife you're feeling. Well, it's your fault that you're feeling all like, so does, by the, the way, isn't the it campaign interesting, helpful then? Isn't it interesting that at one point in Jesus' ministry, he says that his purpose is not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Mm-hmm. And, and there is, there is an element. I mean, Jesus is a divider. Ooh. The Bible is divisive. I was at uh, I was at an Awana quizzing this weekend, mm-hmm. and Awana being a kids program that kid, we have, children's program, the quizzing being like a you know like a yeah the competition bowl for lots of Bible, Bible memory, Bible lots of lots of, yeah. So anyway, um, interestingly enough, like three or four times, the question focused on Hebrews four, where uh, where uh, the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a, pier- than a two-edged sword, piercing to the bone and marrow yeah. and dividing, cutting apart. This is what the Bible does. Right. And, and basically what it does is it cuts us apart from our delusion and enables us to face reality. Can I just, I mean... It's divisive because it divides me from what I think is right. Right. There is a way that seems right to a man, right? But the way of it is death. Yeah. Yeah. Also from Hebrews. Yeah. So um, I think one of the things that I bristle against is, ah, bristle is the right word, but I just struggle here. I, I love seeing Jesus's name proclaimed from a grand stage. And I want... I want that to happen. I want Jesus to be a, a term in our culture that that is interacted with. I want people to wrestle with the reality of Jesus and what he had to say. And I do fear that our culture has is doing such a good job of running from Christianity Jesus. and Jesus that just we have a biblically illiterate culture. Yes. And so anytime something like this comes up, it, it forces biblical literacy at some level because somebody's going to have to interact with that commercial and ask some questions. Yes. And I get that. And I, so there's a sense of me that values that, but then also the other side of me, the cynic in me says like, this is just the next attempt at clickbait Christianity. Mm, mm, and mm. we're, there's no connection with, um, that um, Chiefs fan sitting there watching his team play and coming back, you know, and his wife rushing back in, like, you know, she's super excited about the game. He's just there for the commercials, right? Like, there's no connection to, like, that couple watching that with their group of friends who none of them go to church. Like, what are they supposed to do with a He Gets Us campaign 
And yeah. and where do they go with something like that? Is yeah. it just like a eh, that commercial was lame? Bring the funny one, right? And then which they didn't have. We're not a lot of funny ones. No, but the outtakes on the Dunkin' Donut uh, commercial with uh, Ben Affleck are really pretty good. Fun. They're good. Yeah. yeah. So well, there was so there was a there was a there was a a, a website on mm-hmm. the bottom, right? In very small print. Mm-hmm. In fact, very small print. And you don't need, in, in our day and age, you don't need a big website, right? You just need to Google, he gets us. Except yes. then you get like all of the top results on how awful those how people awful are. How awful those people are, right? Um, here's the thing. I, this isn't the first time we've tried this mm. in evangelical Christianity, broadly evangelical Christianity. Uh, back in the 70s, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, uh, the effort was, it was a... a a nationwide evangelistic campaign called I Found It. And they handed out at churches, they handed out bumper stickers and buttons that yellow buttons and the bumper stickers with black letters saying, I found it. Uh-huh. And, and you were supposed to wear your I found it button to work and have your I found it button or bumper sticker on your car. Just to make people say, what? what did you find? Yeah. Right? And and then you could explain the gospel. The goal was to open up the mouths of Christians and make them explain the gospel. Mm, mm-hmm. And then people would get saved because, after all, all we have to do is open up our mouths and explain the gospel and people will get saved. Yeah. We're- Romans 10, 9, and 10. Somebody's right. got to proclaim this. Somebody's got to proclaim it. Yeah. Right? So that was that goal. I think that... The He Gets Us campaign is an effort to do the same thing. So here's, here's I think this is what they wanted. I think on Monday morning, they wanted everybody standing around in their cubicle saying, did you see the He Gets Us thing? What was that all about? And then some Christian in a very negative environment was going to stand up and say, oh, well, it was about how Jesus loves us and died on the cross for us. And yeah. If you it, will just confess him, you can be saved. Maybe that did happen. I hope so. Maybe that did happen. But I think that the, I think that it's hard to do anything universal mm. when the goal of the gospel is to be shared. Personally? Personally. Is this the, there's the classic... Um, Christian satire piece, like yes. the you know early know Christ, early Christian satire, right? Well before you get to Babylon B, you yes. have you have this um, movie, mm-hmm. um, short it's a movie, classic. It is it's a classic. Honestly, like everybody should watch this at some mm-hmm. level, right? This classic Christian movie called The Gospel Blimp, right? And the idea was in the movie, if you can, I mean, it feels like a Monty Python thing. It does doesn't it? Um, if you can, um, you know, they're gonna. They're going to spend all this money on a blimp, right? And yes. they're going to get all of these pamphlets, yep. tracks, if tracks, you will, right? Yeah. And they're going to put the blimp up in the air. People are going to see the blimp. They're going to wonder what it's for. And then they will rain down these tracks from the, the uh, basket underneath the blimp. People will pick those up, littered all over the ground, and read them and come to a salvation, sal- you know, come to a, a decision to, you know, um, love Jesus and put him yes. first in our life yes. and, and anticipate heaven, right? This Change is the, the world. This is it. If we can just, as a church, if we can put all of our resources, all of our financial resources into this great ad campaign, um, then Jesus will be proclaimed and the world will be changed and all of these problems we faced will be uh, will be fixed. Yes. No. And it goes and horribly it, wrong. For Horribly some, wrong. Yeah. 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 We keep doing this thing. Sure we do. Sure we do. 
because we would we're looking for the easy way out when it comes to evangelization. Hmm. We're looking first of all, we're looking for somebody else to do it for us. Yeah, it'd be great if just something fell out of the sky and all I needed to do was answer questions from my spiritually curious coworker. Yes. Yeah. And and we, we as long as those questions weren't too hard because I don't actually know the Bible that well. Sure. That's that is a that oh man, that's an issue. We do this with church act attendance, which is hard because now we've gotten to a place where we don't even want to ask people to come to church with us. Mm-hmm. But we can use church as a tool for evangelization, but we still have the personal responsibility for it. So, let me, for example, you, you should ask your friends and neighbors to come to church with you. Mm-hmm. But after you ask them to come to church with you, you should follow it up with, what did you think of this morning? Yeah. Which is kind of a an open-ended, and you could get some negative stuff feedback, sure. and then you're going to be really hurt. But you could you could tailor that. You could say, um, tell me something you were found interesting about this morning's sermon, or mm-hmm. uh, what did you, did you like our music, or, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah, open a door and and actually gain the opportunity to use the tool as a means of sharing your faith with Christ. Yeah. Here's, you know, what did you think of our church? Here's why I go to Marsh Corner Community Church. I recognize that I was a sinner and I needed to be saved. And mm-hmm. this church proclaims that. Yeah. You know, use those tools. But part of our problem is we want somebody else to do it for us. Yeah, it'd be really great if, like— our community, my family and friends, my office, my you know, my neighborhood, my kids, little league, you know, parents, if they just all became Christians so that I could help disciple them. Right, right. Exactly. Or, you, know, yes. or, you know, we'd it'd be great if we were all in a smaller group together and we were just all like Christian friends instead of just like little league friends. And right. you know, we do that a lot. Like, we we really want somebody else to do this work for us. And and then every once in a while, um, I, uh, um, I'm watching a, uh, I, I watched the second episode of a new series about a guy who's, you know, got a farm last night and, uh, um, <laughs> and he has these cows and they're talking about, um, what cows will do and because cows are herd animals, you know, if, you know, they all just kind of stand around looking at each other, you know, like you go first, no, you go first, no, I don't want to go, you go. And then when one of them accidentally goes, then the rest of them just fall follow, in line right? and yeah. follow after it. Yeah. I think Christians are looking at each other going, I don't know, you go talk to the non-saved. You, you go talk to him. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. Like I just, I, you know, but you believe this too. Like you're in this, you're part of a church. You You've are trusted in Jesus. You have all of the tools necessary. Yep. And if we keep just looking in a circle going, I don't know who else is going to talk to you, tell me about Jesus. I know. I don't know anybody. I don't know what to do. Then like when somebody eventually like just out of, boredom accidentally takes a step forward and the rest of us fall in line behind that movement um we're not quite sure what we're going to get but we're going in a direction which but we're is good finally move somewhere yeah. which is awesome so yeah. i don't know is is the he gets his campaign just the first cow through the gate maybe maybe it, it would be great if it were um it but requires is that all the other cows like pay attention to that and do something with it sure and I don't know. I, I just think like we're in this like herd mentality of like I don't want to do this. I hope somebody else will lead in this area. Um, and you know, 
you know, maybe somebody more equipped, smarter than me, you know, more, you know, yeah. more in tune with what scripture says, able to answer all these hard questions. Um, listen, believer, that's you. You're the person. Yes. And let, let's put something else important here, right? Yeah. Because the, the culture has told us, Christian, shut up. Mm-hmm. Separation of church and state means that you need to shut up. Yeah. That's good for you. Leave me alone. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want you to put this in perspective. One out of every four people in the United States is an evangelical follower of Jesus on one level or another. They may just be going to church. Mm-hmm. Okay. One in four claims a, a, to be an evangelical Christian, just like us. Mm-hmm. One in four. That makes us actually a majority in our culture. Add to it the folks who are Christians but not evangelicals Mm -hmm. and Catholics but not Protestants Mm -hmm. who actually have an interest in spiritual things. Mm -hmm. And we're a huge number of people in our culture. Yeah, we're at like three and five at that rate. And, And here's the thing. We, we should be talking to one another mm. about that. Mm-hmm. We, we should be talking to one another and asking, what's your relationship with Jesus? Like, realize if you're in a room with 10 people, six people have some kind of understanding and conversation on a spiritually high level mm-hmm. about Christianity. If those six people started talking, the other four are going to identify that the six at least have a conversation and they may actually open their ears. Yeah. In a positive way, because those you six, you actually have a positive influence on the gospel. I, I think that we have been cowed. Ooh. Nice. Good work. Yeah. We have been herded into a section of the field and told you can't move out of there. Mm-hmm. Guess what, gang? There is no fence. Just takes one or two of us to discover there is no fence. We don't have to stay in our herd. We can actually walk. We can actually go. We can actually travel the whole. We can talk to people. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's maybe that's one of the positives that comes out of the he gets us thing. Let's make a positive thing come out of the he gets us campaign. Yes, whatever the background is, whatever the intention is, whatever work it does in our culture. You can make it do something. Yeah. What did you think of the He Gets Us commercial? And then ask your neighbors. How can can you use that commercial to open up the door to talking about the goodness of Jesus? Yeah. That's your challenge this week. I hope you have a great week and can think that through and apply it and use it. Um, It can be a negative. It can be a positive. It kind of depends on you. Always. Yep. So uh, go and uh, serve the Lord well this week. We'll see you back here next time. Bye, everyone. You have been listening to Inside the Pastor Study Podcast with Pastors George and Jeremy Stevens. Artwork by Caitlin Gallagher. Music by San Demetrius. And engineering help from Ashley Gallagher. To find out more about us, head to Marsh Corner.